and welcome to the latest edition of our GRC and Cybersecurity podcast. In today's episode, uh, we've got a very special guest, Robert Woods. We're going to be talking about his career in cyber and do a deep dive on third-party risk management. Hi, Robert. Can you introduce yourself and tell us listeners a little bit about yourself and what the company you work for does? So, my name is Robert Wood. I'm the Chief Information Security Officer for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Also, I'm just all over the place in the cybersecurity industry. I've worked in startups. I've consulted. I continue to consult in various capacities with different organizations. I contribute to a blog around soft skills and cybersecurity. I mean, all in all, in my day job, our organization facilitates the payments for people across the United States on Medicare and Medicaid to for providers to get paid for healthcare services. And so, you know, we manage or oversee and, and have uh, responsibility for over 150 million people and their healthcare data inside of and across the United States. And, you know, that's, of course, a tremendous responsibility. It's a tremendous opportunity as well to things that we do in security make a big impact. And so that's one of the things that has me very excited about the role that I'm in and the opportunity that I have in it. Fantastic. Uh, one of the things before we get any further, we always, we always like to talk about is like, what do you get up to outside of work? What are you interested in outside of cybersecurity? I read a lot. I'm probably one of those a book every week sort of people. I have like a stack of books sitting in front of me. My wife is always getting on my case for uh, you know, all the Amazon boxes that are coming to our uh, to our front door that have another book in them. And so, I mean, I read a ton. I have two children and an amazing wife. I love spending time with them, going on trips, going on outings, just playing, having fun, you know, hanging out with friends. The typical stuff, uh, I enjoy the occasional adventure, so to speak. I climbed Kilimanjaro a few years ago, go out with friends to explore new things like whiskey tastings or, or some sort of outdoorsy thing. And I mean, I'm pretty all over the place. I, I, I like to enjoy myself. Yeah, I love to travel. And the other thing is I'm a big fan of whiskey. <laughs> yes. I think we spoke before, yeah, I love Japanese whiskey. Uh, it's one Same. of my, uh, it's an easy way to... <laughs> Have a nice week. Pass the time. Definitely. <laughs> I'll be having one in a few hours, actually. <laughs> Love it. Friday. It's, it's a little early for me, but I uh, perhaps later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about your current role? And I know, I know you mentioned a little bit before, but like, what's your route to becoming a CISO? Uh, how have you got that? I mean, I find it interesting. So I started off my career in security. I actually studied sports management when I was in university. Totally not technology related. I taught myself various technical things. I had an interest, but I never applied them in a academic setting. Right before I was about to graduate, I had this early life crisis, so to speak. I changed majors, all of that, and ended up finagling my way into a, an internship with a very, very small boutique consultancy in upstate New York. And one of the great things about that, you know, we didn't have IT, we didn't have HR, we didn't have legal, we didn't have any of that. So literally anything that came through our doors, we just did it. And so I got exposed to a lot of different things and got to, you know, do everything from social engineering to red team assessments, to forensics work, to bread and butter pen testing and compliance work and just about everything in between. So I worked there for a little while and then I moved into a much larger established consultancy and that was Sigital. So they've done, they are no longer here. They got bought out by Synopsys, but at the time they were very focused on application security work. So think threat modeling and static code analysis and 
pen testing and building software security programs, which now is a very popular thing. And it's gotten a lot of, it's picked up a lot of headway and steam, but at the time this was not nearly as popular. It was still a little bit of a boutique thing. Network security was still very dominant. Cloud was still sort of coming online. You know, I kind of got my roots also just like getting exposed to as much stuff as I could. So I worked there for a number of years and then I did a series of startups. I was in three startups where I was then that like first head of security role. And one of the great things about those roles is, you know, you're kind of expected to act like the CISO, even though, you know, things are not CISO-like in those environments. There's 30 to 50 people. You're the only person doing security. So you're writing as much code and doing as much hands-on work as you are preparing for compliance uh, assessments and engaging in third-party risk questionnaires and setting a strategic plan or, or talking to the board or, or, you know, whatever it is you're doing. You're kind of, you wear a lot of different hats. And so, one of the great things about working in those different roles was I got exposed to just like the full spectrum of security. And I consider myself a lifelong learner. I love to learn new things and ex get exposed to new things. And so for me, it was just like this school of hard knocks experience where I just got to dive in and just drink from the proverbial fire hose. So I did three startups, one in healthcare, one in cybersecurity, and one in marketing tools. When I was at the last startup, I was getting recruited by CMS for this CISO role. And that was, you know, some people knew me, some people knew the CIO. They figured my kind of technical background, but also my thoughts and perspective on culture and all of that, that it would just be a good fit for what the organization needed at the time. And so, you know, we had some conversations. I decided to throw my hat in the ring. And, you know, through the interview process, I got selected. And, you know, now, of course, here I am. And so the organization that I'm in now, very, very different than a Series A, Series B, Series C startup. But it's, you know, just as much to learn and engage in and, and grow in. And that is very exciting for me. Yeah, I can imagine. I guess it's, I mean, I started in consulting. So you kind of, you get to do a lot of things and get thrown oh, yeah. deep in. Okay, here you go. Just... <laughs> Go and figure this out. Figure it out. I don't think you're always an expert when you're in consulting. It's like, here you go. Go and try this and you figure it out. <laughs> I mean, that figure it out sort of scenario. Like there were so many things that I vividly recall this one engagement that I was on where I was doing a code review for like two months or something. And it was code that was running on some mainframe. And it wasn't COBOL code. It was some derivative language called natural. And so as I'm like Googling natural language, natural, you know, anything about trying to just like understand the code. Cause I knew I wasn't going to, you know, there wasn't going to be some YouTube talk on how to look for security issues in this. I had to kind of learn the constructs of the code and like piece together what I thought could go wrong from a threat model perspective with the code and like the way the language was like the way the programs were written and such. And everything that I could find as in all my Googling was just like natural language processing. And it took me a long time just to find like the manual from this programming language to understand like what in the world I was even looking at. So, I mean, that was like a great sort of experience for me of just like you're dropped in and it's just figuring out like nobody else knows how to do this here. And so you're it. Yeah, it is great. I mean, you do learn a lot, right? And you learn that kind of like oh, yeah. how to deal with like those difficult situations. So, okay, I've kind of, I've done this a few times. I've just been thrown in there and I can figure this out. So give me... <laughs> Give me a few minutes. Let me ask some sensible questions and then I know the route yep. that I need to go down, right? It, it, so can you talk a little bit about size and stage of the information security program uh, at your current organization? It's pretty expansive. We cover everything from 
policymaking to national security related stuff to, uh, of course, security operations. And we have an engineering, like platform engineering team uh, or team of teams, re really. We've got risk assessment, we've got compliance, and we've got a, a data lake team. So we've got a, I think, a really interesting blend of policy and compliance folks, operations folks, and data and engineering team members. And the intersection of all of those um, people manifests in different divisions and teams and value streams and, and all of that. All in all, it's a couple hundred people between federal staff and contractors, and uh, but we cover the full gamut of security needs and such across the across the agency. Can imagine kind of the size and scale and uh, the compliance requirements is a ongoing challenge given it's probably quite difficult to imagine the volume of compliance requirements and audits that you have to deal with. I mean, you know, the compliance stuff is interesting because, you know, we, of course, are a compliance body in and of ourselves. We are writing policy and controls and such and then assessing systems that are that are operating across the environment against those controls. But then at the same time, just because of our size and scale, we are also being audited by third parties to make sure that we're doing the right thing. And so there's this interesting dichotomy of audits and compliance just kind of always at play. And it is what it is. It comes to the territory. We do our best and are really leaning into finding ways to leverage more sensible control mappings and automation and pro like automation of a particular control or process automation or, you know, things like that to just keep on either eliminating burdens altogether or streamlining them or whatever we can do to simplify the process to make it better for all those involved. So are you using things like continuous control monitoring, using tools to like actively monitor that, or is it just... In certain parts of the environment, yes. The way everything kind of comes together, it's a very broad, federated environment. And so, you know, in certain, you think like the core kind of IT environment, like, yes, there's continuous monitoring in, in certain places that is in place, happening, looking at, you know, some stream of telemetry or configuration or what have you. And then there's things that happen on a more system specific level. And the corporate construct would be, you know, there's some, an application in your inventory has to subscribe to the same level of SOC 2 or PCI or, you know, ISO 27,000, like that sort of cascading application of controls is where there's a similar relationship there for us. And then we're also making heavy investments in platform services. Uh, so we have this big project ongoing right now called the Batcave. And that is, it's really about providing an, an opinionated abstraction around cloud services, like broader cloud program that we have here in the agency. And then between Kubernetes as an orchestration layer, continuous monitoring of like the runtime state of containers there, control mapping of different securities, things that you put into a CICD pipeline, the different stages, kind of piece all of that together into a continuous controls monitoring sort of state where we can achieve this state of just ongoing authorization, ongoing continuous security. And so that effort and the, like we're now in the phase of like pushing adoption and like getting people onboarded and all of that. That's a very exciting thing for us as part of this bigger transformation effort that we're working through. Yeah, I can imagine like we were literally talking about this the other day. Um, at PCI London and kind of people like going along this thing and it, to get to that stage must have taken a very long time and obviously had senior level buy-in and everyone understanding how that affects them. Cause it's never as simple as like, 
yeah, we just, I hear so many people, I want to do continuous control monitoring. It's like, okay, have you got the frameworks in place? Have you got the policies and procedures to make it work? Have you got that top-down buy-in? Have you got right. the access to all the places where you need to, to integrate this? Does the tool that you're looking for cover everything? And it's like, the scope of it can be colossal. And I think a lot of people kind of just assume, plug it in, just works. And it's like, I'm not sure it's that easy, guys. No, it's definitely not that easy, but I think, it's also really easy for people to get to look at the enormity of that problem of that thing and think like it's that it's an all or nothing endeavor. And I think security professionals and leaders and such, they need to really embrace this. Like, what is the first step that we can take? You know, if we want to get into continuous monitoring, like find one thing that you can monitor and do so relatively cost effectively, start there, learn and then just every week, every sprint, every quarter, every year, you know, like start just building on that because every little bit of automation and scalable properties that you build into your program are things that aren't going to require a human sitting at a desk checking boxes time after, you know, day after day after day after day. And so, you know, you're slowly laying the groundwork for scale. And I think we have a tendency to get to kind of psych ourselves out. And if the thing is too big, then we don't take the first step to kind of go into it. And I think we need to be a little more, embrace the risk, embrace the opportunity a little bit more. One of the things that you kind of took the words out of my mouth there was like, find a reasonable scope that makes sense. And you can kind of go, okay, well, what's the most important thing? Where can us as a security function add value to our business stakeholders and start to automate it? So you pick those high value controls, high frequency ones and go, actually... <laughs> Let's automate this. Let, let's figure out right. how we do it. And then you get other people going, that's good. You're really helping me there. And then you can talk to other people and then you can start to share that value. And then like, oh, yeah, this is really great now. And you've, you've got that buy-in, but it, I think it's like start on something high value where you can show, well, you can show progress to the organization really quickly. And then it's much easier to go and say, look, we've done this with this budget or whatever. We could achieve this. And you've already got like a yep. success story. And I mean, there's a lot of ways that you could prioritize based on how painful something is, you could prioritize based on how great it'll be for the customer on the other side. Yeah. You know, there's all of these different prioritization frameworks that you could kind of apply. It's just like pick one, be consistent, and then just start going. So I guess what brought me on to having this conversation with you is I saw you posting about uh, <laughs> third-party risk. And talk to me a little bit about, I guess, what you think the current approach is to third-party risk and some of the challenges that you're seeing with this. One of the things that I experienced all the time in my startup experience was, you know, you're of course like you're in a product company, you're trying to sell your product as a, as a business to other businesses. And so they subject you to third party risk assessments. And sometimes that's just, you know, give us your SOC two. Sometimes it's give us your SOC two and your policies. Sometimes it's show us your pen test report. Sometimes it's fill out this questionnaire and do these other things or, or it might be a combination of all those things. And of course, if you're going through a compliance process yourself, you've probably established your own third-party risk management function or capability. Maybe you're just keeping the inventory of who the providers are or you know whatever the process is that you subscribe to. Now, one of my issues with that is, you know, you do all of this work and I think it's becoming like more and more people are accepting that questionnaires just don't cut it. However, they're still so prevalent and, you know, the big enterprises, the big companies, the big buyers of technology are still leveraging them. Why? I don't know. But there's nothing that really ever happens on the other side of it. You know, you don't really ever see any kind of risk decision or risk management outcome happen. Now, the other thing is like those questionnaires or all of that scrutiny is so often focused on the 
efficacy of the organization or the product itself? You know, is this thing compliant with some either standard or framework or set of expectations that we might put upon it? And the issue with that I have is you could buy the most compliant, secure thing in the world and use it really ineffectively or unsafely. And, you know, think something like Google Drive or Box or Salesforce or whatever. Like you can purchase and adopt these kind of tools that might be perfectly safe on paper. And you could not turn on two-factor authentication. You could make your files public to the world. You know, this is like the S3 bucket sort of problem manifested in, in all of these different places. You know, you have a, an S3 bucket or some sort of like data store that you make publicly available and it gets taken advantage of. So I think one thing that third-party risk management really lacks is the like bridging the gap of how these things that we're assessing, these various things or entities that flow through the third-party risk management program, how are we going to use, like what's the intended use case for those things, whether it's a tool or, or an organization, like a partner organization, a services organization, where are those things going to go in our organization? What are they going to integrate with? What data is going to go into them? How reliant on them are we going to be for our operations? Like if they were to go down for five days, like how bad would that be for us? Or, you know, is it just like a whatever kind of a reaction or is it a holy smokes, like something is, you know, like our organization is going to break because this organization has broken. And so I think there's a contextualization piece of the puzzle missing for third party risk management. And that's, I think a, we could also talk about like all the other nuances around, you know, software supply chains and like third and fourth party risk and all that. Like that stuff is more complicated in some way because it just kind of makes the problem space much larger. But I think we could do a lot better at just bread and butter third party risk management by adding that layer of contextualization into our process and not worry so much about how the thing is built, but rather focus more effort on how the thing that we're bringing in is going to fit in our environment. And what are those kind of risk mitigation, risk management things, activities we want to apply on account of that. Like one thing right out of the gates, and like we've been doing this at my current organization, as well as in my last startup is where this idea st first started to kind of incubate. And I started trying things out is think about a, a set of canonical risks. If you could like visualize a kind of list of canonical risks, like account takeover, the company itself gets breached, the, you know, somebody like puts the wrong kind of data into an application, like, you know, it's intended for instant messages or chat, and somebody drops a bunch of PII or credit cards in there, you know, that sort of thing. You sort of enumerate these, these risks. And it's likely that canonical set of risks are going to be fairly like applicable to most of the things that are subject to your third party risk management process. And, you know, all the SaaS tools, for example, that you might be bringing into your organization, they're all going to be subject to potential account takeover, uh, potential data misuse, potential breach of themselves, things like that. And so you think about this, this list, and then depending on the risk of that organization, so the risk of that organization in the context of your organization, and what I mean by that is like, how do you intend to use it? How reliant on it are you going to be? That sort of thing. You should be doing, like, I believe there's fairly structured security activities that you can map to each of these canonical risks. So for, you know, just teasing apart the account takeover, the account takeover risk, 
So if you're if that if that's something that you're really you know is a problem in your organization, and then at the same time you're going to be really reliant on this thing, this is a higher risk provider solution. Then some of your your off the shelf risk management activities then are like okay, then start requiring that it's integrated into your single sign on. If it's next level risk, maybe you require like a service provider specific security policy. You know you have to like re auth or you know, you can only log in from certain IP addresses or you have to have a verified managed device or, you know, something like that. So depending on the risk, you're sort of applying these mitigation activities or these risk management activities. Each of your canonical risks is going to have some of those things associated with it. You think about like uh, like data misuse is another uh, uh, good example. Now, a risk management activity might be putting a CASB in or having some kind of data loss prevention tool or collecting tenant logs, or maybe see if you can get like an isolated tenant or something like that. Maybe you can handle it contractually if there's a data leak, you know, like you sort of like share the risk, that sort of thing. And so I think like organizations can today start making this better for themselves by like mapping out what those risks are, that set of canonical risks for you. And then just next to those, like what are the things that you would ideally want to see consistently applied to manage that risk down to a more acceptable level. And then you just start like thinking through all of that, thinking through that structure for each of your providers. So instead of just trying to push the compliance adherence approach on all of them, do the bare minimum there, unless you know you feel like really compelled that that's gonna be where you get your return on investment. I'm doubtful that that's really, that's all gonna be. But like, and instead shift those resources to adding this layer of context to your third party risk management function. I think like that's a simple and fairly like constrained thing that organizations can do to start actually like getting a little bit more rigor around this capability that that actually like reduces risk in a tangible way. And there's a universal set of risks across all the providers. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really interesting because basically you're setting minimum compliance requirements as an organization that you're saying, well, in order to work as us, you just have to do this. And then from that, you can say, well, actually, here are the processes, that, well, the risks and the controls and processes that you need to have in place or we would expect to be in place to mitigate the risk based on the services that you provide to. I think it's like a much more mature way of thinking about it rather than just saying, here's three or 400 control requirements that I need you to do, which most of the cases aren't always applicable. Well, they're not always applicable. And then at the same time, if we're expecting organizations to go through SOC 2 or PCI or ISO 27000, like what do those things exist for if we're not going to have some measure of reciprocity in? And I realize like those things are not perfect. However, if you were to think about like how risk is sort of broken out across any particular engagement. I don't think my hunch anyways, I don't have data to back this up, but my hunch is that the majority of risk is not in an organization's adherence to some control framework. I believe like most of the, even if you were to just divide it up 50-50, I think and sort of set like compliance adherence at 150% and the rest of the risk, the other 50% being at how you're using the thing. And, you know, how you're integrating and, you know, are you hooking it into your SSO? Do you have a uh, DLP in front of it or CASB? Are you collecting tenant specific logs? Are you doing access control reviews? All of that sort of stuff and just divide it up 50 50. 
than doing like over optimizing with like questionnaires and all of this other stuff to go above and beyond the SOC 2 and, you know, the ISO 27001 and such. You're basically like taking 50%. You're putting in all this effort to get as close to, you know, maybe you're going from 40% up to 50%. But really, there's so much more like opportunity space to manage risk. You just focus on the other area, which is oftentimes completely neglected. And I mean, I would posit that that side of it is probably more than 50% of the risk shared. Uh, but for the sake of, you know, clean delineation and to avoid any uh, potential fistfights afterwards or, uh, you know, LinkedIn scuffles, like, you know, just call it even and kind of split it down the middle. But like, I think there's just a lot of opportunity for organizations to focus on that other side, that contextualization, that use case oriented risk management part of TPRM. I would agree. And I think the other thing is it's like treating it as like just the questionnaire is like, you probably want to work with the vendors and like the way you're talking about is actually understanding the risk. So you're actually, you might be working with them. So actually we want to work with you, but you need to improve X, Y, and Z. This is where we want to work with you. You're having more of that honest conversation with them. Rather than it just being like, here's a set of things, you meet it, yes, no. It's like, actually, right. we're helping identify risk and say, actually, we can work together on this because we want to do this. And it's it feels more like a shared risk model, which is probably what you need, rather than just saying, if you don't do this, you can't work with us. Yeah, I mean, and it's partly the vendor. It's partly the intended consumer. Like, let's yeah. say it's the marketing team in your organization that wants to go out and buy some new thing. Like, actually, having them be part of the conversation, I'm like, how do you guys plan on using this thing? Are you going to hook it up to your other marketing tools? What is that going to look like? What data is going to go there? Who on the team needs access? All of that. And, you know, having this more collaborative conversation, I believe just so much more impactful and effective than, you know, marketing hands off to security. Security just basically pushes controls down the the stack to the vendor. Vendor replies to controls. Security takes that back. And they say something, marketing's going to probably do it anyway, whether or not security <laughs> says yes or no. And then, you know, the world keeps spinning. And I just don't see that being a very effective sort of sequence of events in, in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, it's kind of basically looking at, like you say, engagement, individual engagements and determining the risk before you even start asking questions like, what is this doing? How do we intend to use it? I mean, right. That's like top of, top of funnel stuff. And I think the other thing, like as security teams are like thinking about the way that their processes work, this is not just something that exists as just like a single unit of process deliverable. And, you know, I think there's like one of the things I really benefited from my time spent in startups and the consulting world is, you know, there's so much talk about like funnel creation and funnel management and sort of, you know, these like flows to get your product or your services in front of customers and how you sort of work the funnel at different stages. And I think security teams could benefit from some of that thinking in terms of like you have this sort of top of funnel like collection mechanism to start just like collecting requests and contacts and all of that stuff. And as things kind of flow farther down and get assigned certain levels of risk or things like that, they get engaged with differently. And so, I mean, this is a little bit of a paradigm shift for how most organizations have their programs set up. But at the same time, I think you're going to see a lot more return on investment with the time that you're spending on TPRM. Yeah, I've seen organizations that have worked with prior do kind of things internally for general internal security assessments where they 
have a bunch of let's call similar pre-scoping questions. What does this do? Where's it being used? What kind of data is on it? Where's it located? And you sure. determine from that, like you can actually go, okay, well, and they've done a mapping similar to what you're talking about. Is there, well, what risks? And then what control requirements? And it spits out for the team saying, actually, in order to do this, this is the minimum things we expect. Once this is done, then, then we'll go to the next stage. But it's really not just saying what are all the questions we need to ask, but how do we get to the right things that we need to ask in a much more efficient way? Yeah. But even that, that's still like that process is because I've engaged with those, those sort of systems as well. They're still very focused on like, how does the company or the product, the provider, basically what's going on over there? What do we need to do once that thing comes into our environment? And that I think like that, once it's here, how do we set it up and whatnot? Like that, I think is a, it's just a far too often neglected part of the process. Oh, sorry. Yeah, that was an internal process I was talking about. So that's like once they've onboarded things, like how are they? Gotcha, gotcha. How are they setting it up? But it's a big company. They've done a lot of work on it, but it, it is very nice where it comes in and they like ask the questions to the business stakeholder. Like, okay, how's this been used? What are you running it on? Where's it going? Sure. But the point is that's actually happening after they've procured it. I mean, better late than never, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. Okay. So, what areas are you spending most of your time on? Like, what's the big ticket items that you're working on at the moment? Big thing for us at the moment is really centered around modernizing our data architecture. So we have a big project underway right now, dubbed simply our security data lake. And you think about like all of the pockets of data that end up emerging in a cybersecurity organization. You've got the SIM, you've got, you know, compliance data, you've got personnel related data, you've got like engineering outputs and all of that stuff. And so in my mind, the more that we can sort of collapse those team structures and silos in on themselves and just work off of one unified data layer where, you know, think about like the mechanics of a platform where teams are just contributing data into this unified layer and teams are also simultaneously pulling data out of it to do whatever work they need to do. Like the SOC is going to have a different use case than compliance team. It's going to have a different use case than a product team that they might share 60 to 80% of the same data needs any given day. And so like that effort is a big focus area of mine as of right now. And in terms of like what you think that's really working, so I know you've been in the organization a little while, what things have you done that you think really work and have made a big impact on the organization? The biggest thing that I can call out is probably like really leaning into the extent that I can culture and both like creating a culture within our team where people feel comfortable sticking their necks out and taking risks and even like crafting performance review criteria around risk taking and like cultivating innovation within teams and such like that, you know, investment in culture and then also like making myself and my team more accessible and transparent and engaging across the organization to our stakeholders. I honestly believe like those sort of soft skill like things are some of the most important and impactful things that we do because the tech is always just going to be this ephemeral kind of changing thing. But the like security is so heavily built on relationships and, you know, these partnerships across teams because we're working through other teams when we need to get things done or patch things or what have you. And so the more like the stronger our culture is within our team about how we work and then across teams, how we engage, I think that's really where the the biggest return on investment of my time and energy and effort and attention is sort of coming from. 
Fantastic. And then, so in terms of like heading into 2023, what are your kind of big areas of concern for the industry? So I think the industry, like I'm really encouraged by the push for crafting and, and creating this more engineering forward, data forward culture across security. And I'm really excited to see that, see us kind of move from a more operationally focused ecosystem or discipline to one that is more blended in nature. Because I see us adopting human-centered design and building things and engaging with engineers and, and all of that stuff. And so we're just becoming a much more like multidisciplined field. And I think my concern is that we're not going to be able to keep up with the demands placed upon us, <laughs> that there's so much need for the things that we do that, you know, we're like we have to be investing in like the next wave of people coming into this field, whether it's like younger folks or, or folks who are transitioning from other fields. And I think like that's a big investment area that we just have to like be really cognizant of and supportive of across the board. I agree. There's a lot of challenges to make sure that we get people into this field and so many people like, I know there's a lot of people pushing in the moment, but there are opportunities out there that I think organizations need to take a point on people with the right skills and continue because there's always a demand for security professionals. And no matter what you see, there's never normally enough to support totally. people. And um, look, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on, Robert, to talk about things. So look, can you let us know where the listeners can reach out to? Is LinkedIn the best place to speak to you? Yeah. So on LinkedIn, LinkedIn is good. I'm uh, at Holy Cyber Batman. I used to have a Batman suit hanging behind me. And uh, so <laughs> you can hit me up, hit me up there. Uh, I do all my writing at uh, softsideofcyber.com or most of my writing anyways. It's a whole side effort focused on like raising awareness around soft skills and such. You can tell that, you know, there's a little bit of a passion point of mine. But yeah, I'm, I'm fairly active on LinkedIn. So if you want to engage, like that's where it's at. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much.